The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Cheng Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support now on to our conversation all right we're wrapping up day two of advocacy in action and just wrapped up the keynote of adam taylor the executive director of sojourners on the five smooth stones of faith rooted advocacy all right i have to confess that i had a ton of prepared questions until you brought up marvel at the end of your keynote so <laughs> all of all of those are gone so we're gonna have to talk about marvel's so- social implications during the civil rights movement and <laughs> for the gay community and, and so much more it's okay i won't even get started on that right so, so during the right. keynote you stated that it's easy to do symptomatic advocacy for justice but committing to justice and compassion is what makes transformational difference. So I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah, so I try to make the case that as Christians, we are called to engage in both compassion and justice, and the two very much need each other. Compassion often helps to meet immediate needs, literally to help, kind of using the analogy, pull children out of the river. Justice requires going upstream to figure out what's throwing them in the first place and to address root causes. I had a chance to go into this in, in my remarks, but in a great book called Kingdom Ethics, David Gushy and Glenn Stassen talk about four root causes of injustice that are in the Bible, which include unjust 
exclusion from community, unjust domination, unjust exploitation, and unjust violence. And oftentimes these work in concert with one another, but if you think about pretty much any injustice that we see in our country, often the, the causes can be, be, can be complex, but they often come back to at least one or more of these root causes. And until you name the root cause and then figure out what is gonna be the right solution? Maybe it's gonna require a change in law or policy. Maybe it's a change in attitude because you've got kind of rampant uh, domestic abuse that's happening and it requires both a change in law and a change in attitude. Then we're gonna fall short of having our advocacy be truly transformational. So uh, talk a little bit about um, kind of uh, language we might use kind of faith-rooted advocacy. So what's some recent examples of faith-rooted advocacy that, that you've seen that has worked? And, and how does that give you hope for the future? Yeah, so, so one I touched on, but I'll, I'll share a little bit more detail about. Back when there was kind of a major logjam or stalemate between President Obama and Speaker Boehner and kind of Tea Party caucus around the budget, there was... Uh, a real debate about how to balance our budget, how to reduce our deficit. This is kind of when the Republicans were a little bit more committed to fiscal responsibility. Um, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but in any case, <laughs> the challenge was that neither the President nor Republicans in Congress were talking much about the most vulnerable in our society, particularly those that are living in poverty or living near poverty. And so, in the midst of that moment, there was kind of a, a coalition of religious leaders that started fasting together in order to kind of both kind of purify themselves, but also to try to bring greater awareness to this debate. And they created an organization or kind of a coalition called the Circle of Protection. Literally, this kind of image of religious leaders, church leaders forming a circle of protection around the budget. Now, these are church leaders that disagree on lots of things. I mean, included the Salvation Army and the Catholic Conference of Bishops and the National Association of Evangelicals and the National Council of Churches and Sojourners and Bread for the World and many others. But they found common purpose in this biblical mandate to care for the most vulnerable and to protect the poor. And so they started advocating together. And by doing it together, they had a lot more access to both sides of the aisle. And they were able to convince President Obama to take off of the negotiating table program, what are called mandatory programs that help provide a safety net for the poor, including food stamps. And were able to get Speaker Boehner and other Republicans to also agree to that commitment. I mean, it literally, protected billions of dollars in our budget, hundreds of billions of dollars, that are a direct lifeline to low-income people. And what's been amazing is that coalition has stayed together for you know, 10 plus years and is still active today and has played a key role in helping to push back against proposed budget cuts within the Trump administration budgets that would have basically taken very draconian cuts to a whole series of programs that benefit the poor. Now we have always argued that we wanna make programs more official. So this isn't just a coalition that believes in big government. It actually believes in making government more effective. But it does believe that the government has to play and should play an essential role in helping to lift people out of poverty and providing at least a, uh, you know, kind of a healthy safety net for those that are, are stuck in poverty. You recently wrote uh, that voting is an Imago Dei imperative. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that. Mm. So glad you asked that question. I did not 
plant that one or pay you to do it. <laughs> it's uh, okay. I just read your stuff. So <laughs> there you go. Um, I meant to, to share this, but we are. So, so you saw the African American history of culture and, and history, and there is a whole part of that museum, particularly in the basement, that shows this ugly part of our history where voting was very much a contested right. Blacks all across the South were denied the right to vote. There were huge barriers that were erected. There was huge threats of violence, not just threats, but actual violence for blacks that voted. And one of my favorite moments in the Civil Rights Movement was the Freedom Summer. Uh, in 1963 and 64, where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee invited tons of young people to go to the South and help register people to vote. And they were literally facing death, threat, threat, death threats and violence in the process. But it wasn't just a black movement. There were 700 white young people who answered that call and went down to the South and joined blacks in grassroots communities, local communities, to help register to people to vote. Now, I'm sharing some of this history because it's important to recognize that while through this, so the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we saw huge improvements in ensuring that the right to vote was extended to everyone, in the last 10 years or so, we have seen a huge erosion of that right. And since the Supreme Court agreed through a, a court case about six years ago to remove the pre-clearance process from the Voting Rights Act, which used to require southern states to pre-clear any changes they make to their voting rights or their voting laws uh, uh, with, with Congress, we have seen huge new barriers erected all across the South, but also across the Midwest. And we call these voter suppression tactics. And what they're doing is they are targeted at black communities in particular, and they are trying to ensure that a certain number of black voters are either discouraged from voting or literally can't vote. And so they're everything from moving polling places at the last minute, restricting Sunday voting, which is very popular in black communities, imposing new ID requirements, many of which lower-income folks don't have, um, having robocalls that are giving false information and nothing is done to prevent those from, from happening. I mean, there are literally like 60-some tactics that are being used as a playbook to suppress the vote. And from my perspective, and I hope you share this belief, you know, voting is a, a sacred commitment. It's a sacred right. And it is fundamental to the health of our democracy. And so what we've been saying is that if we truly believe that every single American citizen and every person is made in the image of God, then every voter is made in the image of God, and we have a responsibility to ensure that they can vote in a free and fair election. And so we have been working alongside the African American Clergy Network through a program called Lawyers and Colors to equip and mobilize churches to kind of sound the alarm about voter suppression tactics and literally hold election officials all the way up to the Secretary of State level accountable for a free and fair election. We're also doing a lot of voter education about what's at stake and kind of educating people about their rights at a community level. All this is completely nonpartisan. This is not about choosing one candidate or the other. It's just ensuring that people are able to vote and have the right to vote. And then lastly, on election day, we were recruiting lawyers from churches to work alongside uh, clergy in callers to literally provide a moral presence at the voting booth. Again, in a nonpartisan way, but to kind of welcome people, to monitor what's happening. And if we see evidence of voter suppression, to be able to speak out in real time in order to, you know, kind of push back against that. 2016 was, you know, a razor thin margin. If you just think about you know, the state of Michigan or Wisconsin, those states were decided by 20,000, 30,000 votes. And in those states, 
there was more than those amount of votes that were suppressed as a result of many of these tactics. And so you can argue, and I, I'm afraid that we might have to make this argument again in 2020, that these tactics are literally stealing the election. I know that's stark language, but that's the way that I view this now. And I think it's incumbent upon the church to speak out against this and to really work to try to ensure that every voter made in the image of God can vote in a free and fair election. Now, I just moved away from North Carolina after 25 years and gerrymandered maps and stealing election is something that we know all about in North Carolina. So, In your February article, you wrote, the integrity and credibility of our democratic system is predicated on it on at least some semblance of free and fair elections, but the right to vote has been deeply contested through our nation's history. I'm increasingly fearful that voter suppression tactics that were on display directly threaten the credibility and integrity of the outcome. So what I want us to maybe think about is our CBF churches are predominantly composed of white congregations. Uh, it is what it is. We are a growing um, and diverse uh, denominate work. But what roles should the white church play in the current struggle for voting rights and against forms of voter suppression? And what are some specific actions they can take? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I mean, you can play a huge role as allies and advocates. So I think this work has to be led by the black church, part because they're the affected community, but they need allies. And I'll just name some of the states where we're most active. So we're doing our kind of most intense work in Georgia, North Carolina, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Florida. And there's got to be some CBF churches in many of those states. And so in those states, we would love to connect your churches to this overall campaign. Your pastors could join some of these We Are Watching meetings as they're setting up, being set up with election officials. You could also volunteer on election day. I'm sure your, church, your churches have plenty of lawyers, some more, than, more so than others, but um, you can help recruit lawyers to play this role as uh, election poll watchers and, and kind of legal experts on election day. So we definitely need that support, and we already do have some white allies that have already joined into this campaign, but could certainly benefit from more. And then, and again, I mean, we're doing everything we can to prevent this from happening, but if we have a worst case scenario where it's clear there's been rampant suppression and the uh, electoral outcome has been swayed as a result in key states that determine the election, we need your voices alongside ours to declare this as being a broken, if not stolen election. And not just to turn the page, but to try to ensure that we can do what's necessary to get that rectified. Now, I don't, you know, we don't know exactly what that need, needs to happen until we get to that moment. And again, I'm prayerful and even hopeful that we won't have to get to that moment. But if we do, we need a plan. We need a moral response. And we are trying to prepare the church to be equipped to provide that moral response in that moment if it's necessary. You spoke earlier about facing Goliaths. I, I think the sad reality is, is that most of us want to see ourselves as the shepherd and, and not the giant. Yeah. So who are the Goliaths in our midst? How do we help them see that they are the Goliaths? And, and what do we need to do to overcome the drive behind their giantism, if you will? Yeah. So I was deliberate and careful in saying Goliaths were these crises and challenges that we face, you know, the one-fifth of children that grew up in poverty and the one in three black children that are going to spend time behind bars. Those, those kind of challenges are Goliaths. Um, 
in order to actually slay them or overcome them, we do have to influence and ultimately sway and cajole and convince people <laughs> who are in decision-making places. Um, you know, part of the reason I don't necessarily like to call them Goliaths is I'm not into killing, so <laughs> I do not propose uh, or beheading. Them, right? We love our enemies. Yeah. Uh, no, but but seriously, like it does require identifying who has the power to give you what you want or what needs to happen in order to address whatever injustice you're addressing. And so, so one of the things we do in good advocacy and mobilizing work is what's called a power mapping. So really mapping out who has, inf well, basically, who are the key des decision makers, and then who has influence over those decision makers, and how do you have influence with those influencers? Now, maybe you have direct influence with the decision maker, which is great, but it might be the case that you have a relationship with another church, or you know the church that, that person attends, and that pastor can, can be convinced to make the phone call and to make that pitch and to argue that they do the right thing and make a different decision. And so there's no question that there are you know, many different decision makers that we have to influence in corporate America, in uh, Congress, at the local level, you know, all the way you know, from city council to the mayor and beyond. And so the Goliath can kind of shift and change depending on the issue and, and the circumstance. But, but one of the things I think is really important, this is where I talked about it's important to be both prophetic and to be pastoral. I don't believe in vilifying or demonizing those who were trying to convince. Probably because I don't think it works. I don't think it's Christian, so I really do believe in loving our enemies. But it's also because it just doesn't work. It may give you a short-term victory, but often what happens is you end up burning that bridge with that decision maker, that member of Congress or whoever it is. And so, you know, if you really want to build a longer-term relationship with them, then yes, there's times where you gotta be tough and firm, kind of show them tough love, but if they don't think that you care about them at all or you are only out there criticizing them and when they do something right, you don't praise them, then that is really not effective advocacy and it's not gonna lead to the kind of long-term change that we need. I guess we have to remember that Jesus was crucified by the, I guess, religious leaders and politicians of his day, so maybe vilifying is not the best way to go, so. Amen. You recently wrote that we are in a spiritual desert. Uh, deserts provide time for preparation through deep discernment. Time in the desert gives us the space to think deeply, listen more carefully, and see more clearly. Um, while we're in this desert, how can we best prepare ourselves for what's next as pastors and as churches? And, and what do you think this desert is preparing us for? Well, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in the season of Lent, and I know that in our tradition, not everyone practices Lent. It's not as common. I've become kind of much more observant of Lent, and, you know, Lent, is, as you probably know, mirrors the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert wandering, and then ultimately encountering the three temptations of the devil and overcoming those challenges and ultimately then entering into his public ministry. And so I think part of what times in the desert force us to do is to go deeper in our faith. We can't find the answers as much around us. We've got to find them in the very well of our faith tradition. It also requires us to pray more fervently. I mean, I really believe in the power of prayer, that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. And so kind of going into a, a deeper prayer life, not just for ourselves, but for our nation and for our political leaders and for our communities is really, really essential. And then 
I really see this holy synergy between contemplation and action that, and I, I admit I am guilty as charged. I'm not good at the contemplation part. I'm a little better at the action part. But both are really essential. And time in the desert provides some of that space to contemplate more deeply, to, to kind of get out of the toxic environment that is around us. And certainly in this city, we feel it all the time. But now it's spread to social media, and it's spread to many of our media sources. I mean, one of the things that's particularly alarming to me is that We've gotten to a point where you know, many of us are consuming social media that literally have kind of created a, a little bubble, a false reality, where we're through an algorithm that Facebook and others are using, they are feeding you information that already confirms with your existing biases and prejudices. And I'm not saying that all of your biases are wrong. It just means that you're not being exposed to, to, to opinions and perspectives that are different than yours. And so it is creating this echo chamber that many of us are living in that I think is really dangerous. To make matters worse, there's been studies that have been shown by an organization called More in Common that the more we consume of media, most sources of media, the more we have an exaggerated opinion or understanding of how much the other side dislikes or hates us. And so the more we consume, the more we think that they actually hate or dislike us more than they actually do. And so it's driving so much of this contempt and this polarization. One more study, there's a, a study called the American Values Study where they interviewed Americans and asked them, who's in your close, trustworthy social circle? This is back in 2016. And they found some pretty startling results. They found that 71% of white Americans in this country don't have a single person of color in their close social network. In other words, someone that they trust, they talk to, they confide in. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't have coworkers or that they might not have people in their broader neighborhood. I'm talking about you know, a closer relationship. But still, that's really stunning. Like how, as a country and as a church, do we expect to be the body of Christ? Do we expect to have empathy for people that, that are other than us? How do we expect to better understand the struggles that people different than us are experiencing if we have no real authentic relationship with them? And so I think this is a real challenge for us, even in our desert moment, where we're still very segregated, to kind of come out of the desert by building deeper relationship, by having dialogue. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, but it takes you know, some courage for us to do it by trying to identify some of the shared values that unite us. And I believe there is still much more that binds us as a church and even binds us as Americans than what is driving us apart. But we've got to do the hard work of building the relationships, having the dialogue, and then working together to solve common challenges. So uh, one more thing to ask before we kind of wrap up with our final question, kind of going back to congregations being involved in uh, voting rights and preventing voter suppression. Um, it's such a fearful time for a lot of people who are immigrants and refugees in this country and we're in this controversial census process right now. You know, so how, how should churches um, or should churches get involved in the census process and creating more accurate information for um, the health of their community, for the sustainability of the community, for resources for people who are in need? Yeah, it's a really timely question. I mean, we're literally on the cusp of the launch of the census. Something that happens every 10 years literally helps determine how hundreds of billions of dollars are allocated across states for many of the programs I spoke about earlier that you know provide support and a lifeline to some of the most 
struggling and, and low-income folks in the country. And so, you know, how people are counted is absolutely crucial for kind of the future health of our democracy. And it's really imperative that people are aware of how the census works, that you know, we're, we're kind of going to be leading an initiative called uh, Complete Count Congregations. We want congregations to make a commitment, at the very least, to ensure that every member of your congregation gets counted in the census, knows how to fill out the form, does fill out the form, and you have a way to verify that. But we hope that you'll take it a step further, that you'll go beyond just your congregation and you'll become a complete count community. That however you define your community, depending kind of on the size of your church and whether it's rural or urban, you try to ensure that every member of your community is aware of the census and actually uh, makes sure that they themselves get counted. It's really you know, important that people realize that you don't have to be a citizen to be counted in the census. It is about people, not just citizens and that we've got to work together to try to get an accurate count because that'll literally set the table for how policy is made and how resources are allocated for the next 10 years. So most of us are going home on Thursday and we're gonna go back to serving local churches. And while I'd like to think that I could preach a one-off sermon that illuminates everybody to see the injustices of this world, I also have to remember that when Jesus was prophetic in his hometown, they tried to murder him. Um, it didn't go over well. Um, but the Son of God also teaches us the balance between what it means to be pastoral and what it means to be prophetic. Um, it's worth mentioning that you're not only the executive director of Sojourners, but you're also an ordained American Baptist uh, minister serving at Alfred Street Baptist Church here in Alexandria. So how, how do you strike a balance in these things? Um, or is there a balance that can exist? And, and how, do you, how do you live that out? Yeah, I, I think one, it is really important to be grounded and rooted in a local church. So I love Alpha Street. I'm grateful for Pastor Howard John Wesley. Um, it's a large church, so but it's nowhere close to where we live, <laughs> but it's worth the commute. Um, but I think even though I see my ministry is more national, and you know, I'm traveling way too much, but I, um, I really find that sustenance and that sense of, of community in a church, and that, that's really important for me and I think my family. I think it's important that you know, churches understand that part of what we're facing in the country, I think, is a crisis of discipleship or a lack of discipling in the church. Because I don't think we could be tolerant of the degrees of racism and xenophobia that we're seeing in our politics and our culture if we were being discipled more deeply in the teachings of Christ. And of course, you know, we're all going to fall short, and there's ways in which um, it's not easy to, to follow all of Christ's teachings. But there are, there are certainly ones that are so deeply relevant for the times we're living in that need to be preached, need to be taught, they need to be discussed, they need to be talked about. And it is happening in some places, but it's not happening nearly enough. So that, that's kind of one piece. The other is that, you know, not everyone is called to be a full-time advocate. Um, some are, and that's kind of part of my vocational calling. But I think, as I said before, it is part and parcel to Christian discipleship. And so you have to identify what are the gifts that God is giving you? What are the passions that you have for the state of your community, the state of our country, the state of the world? How do your gifts meet the, some of the greatest needs that you see around you? 
and you know, start with your gifts and start with the things that God has put on your heart and your spirit and work around those things. You know, we can't do everything. One of my favorite gospel songs, I'm a big gospel fan, is by Yolanda Adams, and the, the refrain is, this battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. And I, I, I think about that, I pray about that all the time, because it's easily to feel overwhelmed in kind of all the stuff that's happening in Washington, let alone beyond. And I have to remember that not every battle is mine to fight, and ultimately, the battle is the Lord's. It is not my own. And so, you know, being able to discern what are some of those battles that God wants you to fight, and then how can you pick up those smooth stones and use faith-rooted advocacy to help advance some of that work. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Adam, you can visit sojo.net. Of course, go out and purchase Mobilizing Faith, Faith-Inspired Activism for a Post-Civil Rights Generation, wherever books are sold. Adam, first and foremost, Wakanda forever. <laughs> Wakanda forever. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, thank you for challenging and modeling for us that justice must be accompanied with compassion if done in the way of Jesus. Thank you. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. I'm here with Sharon Felton, the pastor for children and students at Faith Baptist Church in Georgetown, Kentucky. Uh, let's talk about the theological implications for churches working with local schools. There's this thing called separation of church and state, um, but we're not talking about churches leading Bible studies at schools or praying, but something actually, I would argue, more impactful. Um, so tell us how churches might need to rethink why it's important to get involved in local schools and what kind of impact they can have. Well, one of the things that we've been talking about is being incarnate, being with people. And the best way to minister and serve people is to know them and to build relationships. I think one of the things that God did when he created us in God's image is created us for relationship. And so being in the public schools, knowing teachers, knowing principals, knowing those children, getting to know their families, that's when we that's when we begin to understand who they are and what they need and how we can do relationship with them and how we can learn from each other and how we can help each other. I'm proud of uh, University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I pastor. They have an over 30-year partnership with Hel Highland Elementary School through um, what's called a Reading Friends program. And members partner with students over the course of a school year to assist with reading learning and tutoring for a few hours per month. And members in Sunday school classes can also partner with teachers to provide care and hospitality and support. So this is a long-term partnership. But I think about for churches that are not involved at all in a school close to them, uh, the thought of starting 
a conversation with a local school might be intimidating, might be difficult. Mm -hmm. So how would you recommend a church starting a conversation with a local school, and what are some of the practical ways that they can help local schools? The best thing to do is to meet the principal. Just go meet the principal, tell them who you are, that you are praying for them, that you want to listen and find out what their school's about. Let them give you a tour of the school. Let them introduce you to other folks in the administration, other teachers. And then just sit down and listen. Ask questions and listen. Find out what, what are their biggest needs. What are the things that they struggle with to try to cover? What are things that, um, that they just don't have because of maybe where they are or they're putting resources in a different direction. And may, maybe you have teachers from the school in your church and that's a great place to make a connection as well. And then once the principal begins to tell you these are things we need, go back to your church and find out, well, can we do that? Could we help run um, or help do the car line? Can we stand in the cafeteria at lunch so that teachers can eat lunch and not have to monitor the tables? Can we collect food for the backpack program? Most schools have a backpack program. You collect the, the groceries, you take them to the school, the school packs them up. Or maybe you could help pack the backpacks. There's some little thing that you can do to start. Um, make sure everybody gets background checked. Go through all the proper channels with the school. And then be there. Just be there. But listening, learning, and then just being present. Let's talk about some of the legislative work that's being done by Pastors for Children. Um, I'm in the state of Louisiana. And a little background, Louisiana was the last state to force integration. Um, and the response from the white community was to privatize education, primarily founding schools through the church. And as a result, the public school system suffers as a result of poor resources because legislators have no incentive um, because they're receiving their wallets being padded by lobbyists to support private schools and their families. So what are some of the key legislative priorities of Pastors for Children, and what should we know about these pieces of legislation? I think one of the most important ones is to, to prevent the vouchers and scholarship tax credits because that takes public money away from those public schools. Uh, we have several pastor friends who have schools in their churches, and they say, I don't... I don't want your money. It needs to go to the public schools. And to be honest, religious schools shouldn't want public money because as soon as the government gives you money, they're going to want to tell you what to do with it. So the last thing that most religious schools really should want is public money. Um, but it, we all want that money to go into our public schools to help them be better, to help them be better for all of the children because all of those children are going to grow up to be adults in your community. And you want all of them to have a good, solid education, and that needs funding. The other thing is the, um, charter schools. We need charter schools to either have oversight and accountability, or we don't need them. So those are probably two of the most important things. So like all of these things, um, I've got a bunch of engineers in my church, which means there's got to be some sort of metric of success. So how do we measure success when it comes to working with local schools, um, and how do we convey the why behind this kind of work? 
it's really difficult because I think it's difficult difficult for every every student is a different success story. There was a little boy in kindergarten who came in essentially mute. By the end of the year, the little boy was sitting in front of his class reading a story that he had written. That's success. That's not going to be measured on a standardized test that is put in front of those children too many times. Um, but that's success for that child. And he's going to go and grow and do amazing things because he has teachers who are loving on him. So it's difficult to say this is what successful school looks like. But I would say when there's more than adequate funding for every school, when teachers have what they need, when teachers are paid well and their profession is valued, because so many times it's devalued um, these days. So I think helping make sure teachers are are taken care of, making sure schools have everything that they need to be the very best that they can be for the population of students that they have, and making sure that those students um, are growing and learning and being successful in whatever that means for that student. And it's different for every student. This is uh, more than just education. Um, there might be some systematic racism and economic discrimination sure. involved in all of this. So how do we, uh, local church pastors, do theological education with our congregations around the greater implications at play here? I think when we, when you walk into a public school, you see the kingdom of God. We are all in there together, learning together, learning how to get along together, learning with people who are different than we are, who look different, who have different abilities and disabilities. So it is a really beautiful picture to me of the kingdom of God. So helping our congregations understand that and understand that, that God calls us to be the neighbor to everyone, that it's not just the people that look like us or make the same amount of money that we do or work in the same field that we do, but that God calls us to love and care for all of our neighbors. And that includes all of these children who are different than we are and their families are different than our families are. But that means that we have to get in there and build relationships so we know who they are, so we know how we can love them and so that we can learn from them too. We might not have time to unpack this one, but as I, as I was listening to you present earlier, um, and unfortunately for our, you know, those listening to this podcast later on, they won't have an opportunity to hear that. I think the argument can be made that working in local schools is far more important than what many of our churches are doing today. Sure. On a given Sunday. Sure. So make that argument for me. <laughs> why why is our involvement in local schools sometimes more important than the things that we prioritize within the church? Well, hopefully what we've learned at church moves us into the school. I mean, the reason we do church is to go into the school. The reason we love Jesus and the reason we learn more about Jesus is so that we can learn and love other people. If we're not doing that, if we're just having a good time with ourselves in our churches, it's a country club or it's a group. It's not a church. Church calls us out. The Holy Spirit moves us to go and do. And so we're not going and doing and loving other people. We're not really being the church. Good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
what what CBF churches um, should we know about and the work they're doing in the area of education? Oh my goodness, there's too many. Uh, in my state, I think that St. Matthew's Baptist Church is doing a fantastic job with their school ministry network. Uh, they they have 60 plus volunteers in a public school every week, loving and caring for teachers and children. Uh, I think my church, Faith Baptist Church, we have an after-school program. We go into the school and do mentoring. We provide a space for the school to store furniture when families need furniture. I mean, just crazy things that you would never think of. I know that in Texas, there are a, hundreds of churches doing fantastic stuff. I know that um, Charlie Johnson, who's Bread for the World's pastor, they do great things. I know that First Baptist Austin does incredible stuff. I think, I, I really think that more churches are doing this kind of work. They're just not recognizing it as kingdom work necessarily. Um, it's like I've talked to so many people who say, well, we, are, we provide food for the backpack program. I'm like, yes, that's it. That's that's what we want you to do. Now let's see what else you can do. So I think more churches are involved in this kind of ministry. They just don't really recognize it, that this is kingdom work that you're doing. Many people want to argue that education reform is a state issue. Um, so how can we work to expand public education at the federal level? And how might we as ministers and as lay leaders and congregations get involved in, in making sure that actually happens? Well, we all get federal funding for certain programs and things in our schools. So I think making sure that that funding continues, maybe it could even increase. I think seeing public schools as an investment rather than an expense, uh, I think that the charter school bill that's running through right now is an oversight bill which will help make sure that when charter schools do open and get public funding that they are doing what they say they're going to do so i think those are those are just two really important things it's it's all about money really <laughs> everything is maybe our last question is um how can we address public education on sunday mornings well, again, it will look different in every church. We had, a, we had a public education Sunday, and we preached about Jesus being the great teacher. We preached about Jesus saying, let all of the little children come to me. And so then we recognized our teachers, and we gave every teacher a gift at the end of the service. It was a bag with highlighters and Sharpies and paper and a devotional book. We can talk about doing good in the public square. We can talk about doing good in our public schools. I think preachers can preach more about loving our neighbor and what that looks like and where we go and how we do that. And then I think we have to model that. I think our pastors have to be in the schools as well. It can't just be the senior adult ladies who are retired and want something to do. It's got to be all of us being there with the, the teachers and the children and then their families as well. Well, Sharon, thank you for giving us a unique way to, to care for our communities by supporting teachers and empowering students. Thanks. 
right, we are wrapping up our final day of advocacy and action and just wrapped a keynote with Father Tom Reese, Senior Analyst for Religion News Service. Uh, the keynote was a riveting step-by-step -step escape plan out of purgatory. I took plenty of notes on, on all of it. <laughs> you know, as a, as a church historian, um, we have to embrace that part of our history was a symbiotic relationship between the church and the state, but that's a thing of, of the past, especially here in the United States. So in your view, how does the church look at separation of church and, sh church and state, and, and how do they, how do they uh, manage that relationship within, within the church? That's a real great question, and it was part of the section I dropped because of the fire alarm. Uh, but in any case, yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the Catholic bishops don't endorse candidates. They don't endorse political parties. I think, in, in a sense, Catholics learn from the mistakes that Catholics in Europe made over the centuries of getting too close to the crown, too close to the throne, too close to the establishment powers. And we, you know, that didn't end well when the French Revolution came around uh, or when uh, uh, people left the Catholic, men, for example, left the Catholic Church during the 19th century because the Catholic Church was against free press, was against unions, was against uh, democracy, all of these kinds of things in the early part of the 19th century. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century we, we got our act together. And in many, many places, that was too late. So I think, you know, the, the immigrants that came to the United States remembered that history. And, the, the, and plus, the, when they came here, uh, they were under deep suspicion. So any idea that Catholics were going to take power uh, was very threatening, mm -hmm. and so we, we avoided making that look. And to be honest with you, our theology, you, you were right to be worried. Our theology, up until the Second Vatican Council, said that if Catholics ever got to be a majority in a country, they had to make the Catholic Church, the Catholicism, the state religion. That was what we taught. That was what we actually taught until the Second Vatican Council. Now, Catholics in the United States had no idea that that's what we taught. You know, nobody was preaching that from the pulpit. That was in these textbooks that nobody read. But that was the official teaching of the church. And that was one of the great changes that came about at the Second Vatican Council uh, to, to embrace religious freedom to embrace the separation of church and state. Not that they'd be antagonistic, but that they would be, uh, they could cooperate in their proper domains. You know, the church would have the right to speak on issues, but not the right to command people to do uh, certain things. It was, it was embracing the secular state, but not embracing secularism, you know. It was arguing that there's still religious values that should motivate voters, but religion, but there was not to be a state religion. And, you know, and there can be all, and people who don't have the same religion have equal rights as citizens. Uh, so this was extremely important uh, for the Catholic Church. It was a big change. Uh, 
frankly, Catholics in the United States were way ahead of the Vatican uh, during the 20th century. There was nobody in the United States trying to, uh, you know, impose Catholicism as the state religion. People would have, and, and uh, Al Smith was once uh, uh, told, you know, you have these papal, you know, the Catholic Church has these papal encyclicals that say this and that and this. Poor Al Smith said, what's an encyclical? <laughs> he had no idea what they were talking about. And that was the, the situation of most Catholics in the United States. They were trying to get food to put on the table for their families. They were not trying to take over the world. Don't worry, the evangelical church is continuing to try to merge church and state together. 81% um, of evangelicals voted for Trump in the last election, and only this year will tell if, if we'll maintain that trend. You recently wrote, um, and you spoke about this in your, your keynote earlier, that uh, Democratic candidates seem to be ignoring the Catholic voting base. You wrote, abortion is not the only issue Catholics are concerned about. It would not hurt Democrats every once in a while to drop the quote of Pope Francis when speaking about climate change, or how about quoting the Pope about building bridges, not walls. What, what seems to sway most, most Catholic voters, or, or can that even be surmised? Well, uh, all of my academic friends believe that if we could only teach everybody in the Catholic Church about Catholic social teaching, uh, then they would vote properly, like them. Uh, let's face it, you know, that it's, that's just not real. Most Catholics are concerned about the same thing everybody else is. They're concerned about their families. They're concerned about health care. It was very interesting when Hispanics were interviewed why they voted for Bernie Sanders. Even Hispanics in Nevada, that was the one that was absolutely remarkable. You had these Hispanics in Nevada who had good union uh, health care plans. And of course, the uh, opponents of Bernie Sanders were saying, you're going to lose your health care plan. Well, these, actually, these people were thinking, yeah, I would lose my health care plan, but my extended family does not have health care. And if I lose my job, I will not have health care. So they were thinking beyond their own person. That was amazing. They were thinking beyond their own personal concerns. Uh, to their families and to their extended family. And I think that uh, Catholics are concerned for the most part about those same kinds of things. They're concerned about jobs, they're concerned about their retirement, they're concerned about health care, and if they're your age, they're concerned about paying off their college loans and, and those kinds of things, just like everybody else is. They're concerned about bringing their their, uh, their uh, sons and daughters home from Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, it's, it's many of these same issues. The difference with Catholic social teaching is it gives us a framework in which to talk about those issues. So it isn't just, I'm doing this for me, but you know, this is, we're talking about the common good, the good of everybody. Um, I mean, one of the advantages, that, one of the important things that Catholics had 
uh, is that we are a universal church. We are, there's Catholics everywhere in the world. So we can, and this is becoming more and more true, of course, of evangelicals. There are evangelicals all over the world now, too, in Africa and Latin America and Asia. And so, you know, when we talk about our brothers and sisters, it's not just Americans. It's not just people in our congregation. It's people around the world that we are concerned about. So when we're concerned about religious freedom, you know, we're, about, we're concerned about whether we have to buy birth control or, 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 you know, who we hire in jobs and stuff. In many countries, this is a life and death. In the Middle East, this is a life and death issue. In Syria and in Iraq, Christians have been, I mean, it's just awful the way they have been caught in these wars and the concern for them. Uh, so uh, these are big concerns that Christians should be concerned about. You know, we, not just our personal welfare and our family's welfare, but also the welfare of the community. And that's what we mean when we talk about the common good. Uh, you know, the common good is worrying about the air, the water, the climate, uh, the environment in which we live, the pub public health services that we have to deal with crises like the coronavirus today. You know, you can't just continue cutting those budgets uh, and cutting research and thinking that, oh, when it, you know, I'll be out of office or, you know, I'll be dead before that crisis hits. You know, uh, we have to be concerned about those things today. You recently wrote that you're giving up Donald Trump for Lent. <laughs> giving up Trump for Lent will help me relax and be more peaceful. I will be happier if I pretend he is not there, and this probably is true for many of us. So let's not talk about Trump, um, because I don't want to mess up your Lenten commitment. But let's talk about the implications um, of the matters raised through his election. The 2016 election really was a microcosm of some America's greatest fears, namely um, of immigrants and unborn rights and the decline of white control. Where, where does the church fit into all this? If this is what people fear, how might we theologically address these matters? And, and, and take this deeper into your work at RNS of how, how you see journalism as an outlet to help educate uh, and quell the fears of American Catholics. Uh, this, this is really, uh, uh, your, your question really hits at the heart of the issues that I think we face as our country. Uh, as a Christian, I wish that people were motivated by the gospel, you know, in politics. I wish that they were motivated by Catholic social teaching. Uh, in reality, now, as a political scientist, I'm bipolar. I'm a Christian and I'm a political scientist. As a political scientist, I see that people are motivated by fear, by hatred. Uh, I think the election in 2016, for example, a lot of people came out to vote because they hated Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I think a lot of people are going to come out in 2000. In 20 in November because they hate Donald Trump. It's sad that hatred and fear is, is a big motivator in American politics. And the parties play into this because 
As I said, there are really very few people that are swing voters. This Pew says it's about 7%. And many of these people don't, you know, first you gotta, oh, there's an election. Uh, they're, they're uninformed. They don't vote. You know, maybe, you know, they got three jobs. How am I supposed to keep up with politics if I'm, you know, if I got three jobs and uh, trying to support my kid and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's kind of tough uh, getting them. Um, so this is, this is a real problem. And, and, you know, politics is so oriented towards getting people mad. And we see this on the, the talk shows, on the, the networks, et cetera. Um, I think, though, I, you know, we you know, we can preach love. I mean, that's what we got to do. We got to preach reconciliation. We got to say, hey, this is not what Jesus said we ought to be like. I think that's an important. But as a social scientist, I also have to ask, why are people this way? Uh, and I think, you know, we have to look at the impact of globalization. I mean, Trump was right on the impact of globalization and the impact of mechanization, automation, on working class people, on the white, uh, less than college educated working class people who felt they were part of the middle class, could be part of the middle class, until suddenly all these factories started closing. You know, when you're a one factory town and the, t and the factory closes, it is devastating. And frankly, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats had programs to help these communities. They said, oh, well, you can move. Oh, you can get retrained. Well, how do you move when the value of your house just plummeted by 60%, you can't sell that house and buy a house in, a, in California where there might be a job. Nobody can buy a house in California. You know, I mean, so, you know, you're just, you're, you know, your, your wealth was just decimated because your wealth was in your house. You know, the, all the small businesses there are decimated because of the factory closing. And, you know, your network supports are all in that community. You know, the grandparents that babysit. You know, your friends who help out. You know, how are you gonna just get up and leave and abandon that community? Uh, you know, the, the, the other thing, you know, the Democrats couldn't understand why poor people would vote for a rich man, a billionaire. The truth of the matter is poor people don't hate rich people. They hate professionals. They hate lawyers. They hate social workers. They hate school teachers because they're the people that are telling them how to live their lives. They're the pe people who are telling them how to raise their kids. They're the people who are, you know, coming in and saying you ought to do this or that. Uh, they hate the elites. And when they talk about the elites, it's those people, those people who didn't have compassion as an intrinsic part of their job description, the people who came into these communities with arrogance, 
and said, we know better than you do what's good for, uh, for you. Listen to us. We clergy do that all the time, of course. When we come into a new church, we always know better than the congregation what's good for you. That's called clericalism. Uh, but, you know, so these, you know, in, this is what we needed to, to get at in order to get beyond where we are today, uh, to restore trust. You know, if somebody comes into a community and says, I want to hear about your problems, and listens, then, you know, and say, okay, how can we work together? You know, community organizers know this. This is the way you, you operate. You don't come into a community. I had some Jesuit colleagues that were community. This was back in the 70s when community organizing was just starting. And they were working in Oakland. And they wanted to come in and organize the people to go get the man. You know, go get, you know. And, you know, they came into the community. What did the community want? They wanted the porno shop closed down in their neighborhood. not interested in closing down. They wanted to go march on City Hall, you know, for, you know, better schools, better. The people wanted, okay, and they wanted stop signs. So that's what they did. That's where they started. And then they moved on. They established credibility. People got trained in how to be community activists. The people got a sense of power and entitlement. And they went on from there and did great things in the city of Oakland. But they, it worked because they came in first and listened. And that's what people aren't doing. That's what professionals aren't doing. And that's what they have to learn uh, how to do. You recently wrote, the prophet also spoke to the political leader. Taking care of the hungry, the homeless, the oppressed is not just an individual mandate, it's a civic responsibility. The prophet's threatened desire consequences to the nation is failed in its responsibility. The marketplace cannot solve all the problems. There is legislative role of government in caring for the poor and the marginalized. In the evangelical tradition, the pulpit has, one, has been one of the most effective tools for prophetic teaching. I'm reminded of the power of the Catholic Church's response to the Pinochet regime in Chile when thousands were being murdered and kidnapped by the government, and the response was excommunication of the kidnappers and the murderers, and it prophetically was effective. So what is the most effective method of being prophetic within the Catholic Church? Wow. Uh, I think, you know, we have to always go back to the gospel. We have to go back to Matthew 25, you know, the, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I mean, I think we always have to go back to that and how Jesus reached out to the sick and the poor, the hungry. He fed them. Uh, all of these kinds of things. Uh, the Christian churches, you know, from the beginning of time, uh, beginning of Christianity, was always concerned about the poor in, the, in their midst. Uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, this, of course, was the job of the deacons uh, to, to help in the, the care of widows and orphans and the hungry. Um, 
I think that one of the things, though, that Catholic social teaching has learned and made a point of is that this is not simply an individual responsibility. It is not simply an ecclesial responsibility. It is also a civic responsibility. That there is a role for government uh, in uh, taking care of the poor, of uh, dealing with health care, of uh, having programs to feed the hungry and take care of uh, these kinds of things. I think there is a temptation among some Christians to say, oh, this is, you know, if the Christ, you know, if Christians were good Christians, we would take care of this problem. We wouldn't have the government. We should do this. Uh, we should step up and do this. Well, the simple fact is, we don't have the resources to do it all. Uh, we can help, and there's all sorts of uh, programs that Christian charities have to helping the poor. But it's a drop in the bucket in terms of need. And that's why there is a need for government. I think there can be also a, a, a cooperative relationship between government and churches. Uh, Catholic charities movements, for example, get lots of money uh, from the government to run programs. It means that these programs cannot be proselytizing. You know, we feed the hungry because they're hungry and because we are Christians. We don't feed the hungry because we want to make them Christian. You know, and that has to be very clear in how we approach people. And we welcome people and we hire people. In Catholic relief services around the world, uh, in Pakistan and in uh, Iraq, you know, most of our employees are Muslims. You know, we don't care as long as they're good at their job and help in distributing the, the help to the people who need it, you know, and, you know, and following it. You know, so uh, these are kinds of, uh, of things that I think churches can be involved in. I think, you know, I, I don't, you know, the role of, I preach all the, you know, I preach on Sundays in the pulpit, you know, and I, I preach our responsibility. I preach social justice. I sometimes feel like I'm preaching to the saved uh, because I'm sure that people who disagree with me don't come to this church anymore. They find that's one of the things about Catholics. Uh, we vote with our feet. You know, it used to be if you were a Catholic, you had to go to the parish in your neighborhood. Well, that isn't true anymore. Just like everybody else, we get in our cars and we find a, a hospitable church uh, that's hospitable to our own views. So uh, there's a terrible self-selection in terms of where we go to church. And we have to figure out how to reach out from congregation to congregation even. We have to be ec ecumenical within our own denominations, you know. Uh, you know, on how we do this. Um, I've, you know, if I, I won't be, if I was the Archbishop of Washington or the Archbishop somewhere, one of the things I would do is I would invite uh, two Catholic Republican leaders, two Catholic Democratic leaders. You know, every week I'd have a couple come, you know, and have dinner off the record. 
you know, I get a little training in mediation and uh, how to how to do this kind of thing because uh, I've I never tried it, but I think this is what we ought to do to get them to come together and talk about, you know, what's what's your faith mean for you in your public life? Tell me about, it. share that. What's, you know, what's the gospel mean for you and your family? And share, you know, let's not talk about health care, the mechanics of health care and abortion and who's right and who's wrong. First, let's talk together as Christians and what our faith means to us. How do we pray? And so that we see each other as, geez, that's amazing. That Republican, he prays every night. He reads the scripture. Not only that, but he works at a food kitchen. You know, he's 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 in he's uh, at at a you know helping uh, uh, kids learn you know how to read and write and do their arithmetic. You know, poor kids. Jeez, I didn't know that about. I thought he was a jerk. I thought he hated poor people. Okay, you know, and then you listen to the Democrat, and it says, oh, you know, he's not so bad. You know. Uh, we gotta, we gotta recognize the humanity of each other, the Christian, the Christianness of each other, and even if we're not Christian, the humanity of each other. Uh, you know, I think that that's what churches can do. We, you know, we bring people together. Uh, we break bread. We share. We share the word of God together, uh, with respect. You know. I'm not so sure that me up in the pulpit haranguing people is going to do much good. Uh, you know, uh, putting guilt trips on people is not going to do it. Um, and I, you know, but I think there's a point too. I think that some people in my con congregation like to say amen, amen, but then go home and don't do anything. Uh, there's there's that difficulty too. Uh, so, I you know it's a great question. I think it's a question that you know preachers need to get together and share experiences and best practices on. And I think that congregations need to get together to talk about. Uh, you know, I should sit down with my congregation and say, you know, what should I be saying up there in the pulpit? You know. Uh, how do we do this? I, I was with a parish that did this uh, for a while where I met with a group of uh, members of the congregation on Wednesday, and they would help me write my, my sermon. Uh, that was an experience. Uh, it was fun. Uh, not always fun, but uh, it was educational, you know. And uh, so uh, I don't know, you know, I, I'm rambling now, but I think those are some of the things. We don't know what to do, but those are some of the things I think we need to try. Baptists vote with their feet, too. That's why there's like four First Baptists in this town. Um, the Jesuits are by far the greatest among the Catholic orders. I've already told you that once before. Um, in more recent years, the Jesuits have led the way in being more vocal on advocacy issues within the church, including and not limited to immigration, gender rights, inclusiveness of the LGBTQ community. What are other injustices that the Jesuits are advocating against that we need to be aware of? 
Oh, wow, there's lots of, of different things that we're involved in. Uh, just in the community where I'm living, uh, we have people working with Jesuit refugee services. Uh, we, you know, because of our background in education, we thought, well, you know, we have these refugee camps all over the world, and they're not going home like we, we thought they would. And we have, you know, kids, you know, growing up, being born in these camps, and uh, uh, they're losing the opportunity to get educated. So we thought, hey, maybe we can do something here. This is something that we could bring. And so Jesuit Refugee Services has been involved in trying to bring education to refugee camps and refugee situations around the world. Uh, that's, that's one thing that, that we've been involved in. Um, We've been involved in resettlement uh, programs uh, all over the world also. Uh, the Catholic Church in the United States resettled probably more re you know, Vietnamese refugees than any other organization. Lutherans also were big time in, in doing this, uh, other groups. It's, it's one of the, I mean, I, if you've read any of my columns, you know I'm always giving the bishops a bad time and giving the hierarchy a bad time. But there is a value in hierarchy and bureaucracy, you know. Uh, there was uh, a woman in, in uh, uh, Nebraska, I think it was, who ran the Catholic Charities uh, organization there. I was interviewing her, and uh, I asked her, you know, how did you, how, how did you get involved with resettling Vietnamese refugees up here in Nebraska? The poor Vietnamese, you know, going from from Vietnam to snow and ice. Uh, anyway, you know, but she gets a call from the office in Washington and said, they say, you know, how many uh, Vietnamese refugees can you resettle up there? And she says, oh, you know, I think we could do 20. Well, she got 200. You know, and that's the kind of thing that bureaucracy and, and structure uh, helps you to do when you, you work together to do these kinds of things. Uh, you know, in our schools, we have pushed, you know, this whole program of social justice as an integral part of preaching the gospel. Uh, we have the Jesuit Volunteer Service uh, here in the United States where young people, you know, the first one or two years after college, you know, uh, do volunteer work, you know, in various uh, outreach programs around the world. Uh, in, in, in the United States and around the world, we have an international Jesuit ref, uh, Volunteer Service also getting young people involved. And the JVC is the Jesuit Refugee Service uh, volunteers refer to it as being ruined for life. Because after working for a year and did something like this, the idea of just going out and making money as the goal of your life is kind of, it's hard to do after having that kind of experience. Uh, so we see a lot of these people going into the helping professions. They still have to make a living. They're not going to make a living working for, you know, the Jesuit Ref uh, Viet uh, Volunteer Service. Uh, but going out and, you know, and getting involved 
in teaching profession, nursing professions, uh, social workers, uh, community organizing, you know, these kinds of mobilizing uh, uh, people and, and political uh, kinds of things. So these are some of the kinds of things that uh, uh, Jesuits uh, have been involved in. Uh, the environment is a big issue now for uh, for the Jesuits and our schools. All of our schools are trying to figure out how do we go carbon neutral, you know, and how can we do that on campus, you know. Uh, Suddenly, over Georgetown, the grease from the kitchen is, you know, being, uh, I don't know what they're doing. You know, I lead the chemistry department and the students are figuring out how to turn it into fuel, you know, to run the buses, you know, the, uh, at the school. Things like that uh, to work towards being carbon neutral and, you know, getting people aware of that. Uh, of these kinds of issues that are so important uh, to the survival of our species, frankly, and our world. Uh, my generation is going to go down and be cursed by your grandchildren because we did nothing and we knew it was coming. We are going to be looked upon as Christians in Germany during the Second World War. Why didn't they do something for the Jews? And they're going to look back on us and they're going to say, why didn't those boomers do something for us? You know, as we're in the greatest cataclysm to hit humanity uh, at the end of this century. Uh, you know, this is, this is a Christian responsibility. We will be judged, you know, by how we do or do not concern ourselves about the environment and for future generations. Uh, we cannot simply say that, okay, the end is near and Jesus is going to come and save us. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe. But don't bet the bank. Don't bet your great great grandchildren on it. Uh, you know, I think we have to take responsibility for where the world is going to be. Well, if you want to stay connected with Father Tom Reese, you can see his work at Religion News Service. Follow him on Twitter at Thomas Reese S J. So you all have witnessed why I think this is the greatest of the Jesuits. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Father Reese, thank you for being you and, and generously sharing your wisdom and humility and voice of reason with not just the Catholic Church, but also we Baptists who see the wealth of your worth. Well, I'm honored to be with you, and I enjoyed it very much. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their website, fuller.edu healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.